Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange unique and idiosyncratic have a good time what was your special order you read it i thought it was clear what was it bring back life form priority one all other priorities rescinded from the distant moon of lv426 to the other distant moon of LV223. We are Halloweenies. Welcome back to Alien. We uh, just talked in depth on our last episode about the pre-production, production, and post-production of the film, as well as the news on the possible series coming out and the film. So go back and check that out if you haven't already. We're here. It's time to wake everyone up who's fallen asleep over the course of that entire history and episode that we covered <laughs> as we move and to the music that made the movie in a category we're calling Let's Rock! Welcome. How may I help you? How about some music, Mother? Selection. Richard Wagner. Das Rheingold. Act Two. The entry of the gods into Valhalla. Yes, David. As you wish. Rachel, take it away. Oh my gosh, you guys. Jerry Goldsmith, composer on this film. Love me some Jerry Goldsmith, so super excited to get into this. In case you don't know, Jerry Goldsmith is one of the most prolific and iconic film composers in history. Dude was born and raised in L.A. He's got Hollywood in his blood and played piano from a young age. Started writing scores for television in the 1950s. He's been... Oh, he was. Sadly, he's not with us anymore, but was composing since the 1950s and received his first Oscar nomination for the film Freud from 1962. 
that's going to come back. So hold on to that. And it would certainly not be his last total. He received 18 Academy Award nominations for films like, oh, I don't know, Planet of the Apes, Chinatown, mm-hmm. Ultrageist, Star Trek, Basic Instinct. I don't know, heard of him. However, he only ever received one win, which was interestingly for The Omen horror film. Can you believe it? Yeah, early on. Yeah. Yeah. Great score. Yeah, amazing score. 1977. And, you know, his style is kind of known for featuring unique instrumentation, some interesting ethnic instruments, found sounds, but he also embraced a lot of modern and evolving technologies of the time and used a lot of extended techniques along with kind of a more traditional orchestra sound. A lot of times he would mix these all at the same time. And it makes sense why he would be chosen for this film. But, you know, look, Alien is one of those scores that is not only just great. Not surprisingly, it also has a pretty super interesting behind-the-scenes story that I just can't get enough of. So we're going to talk about that. Nothing on this film was easy, apparently, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> what? I know. Like, it seems like literally nothing about this was easy. <laughs> I actually don't know this story. Does it involve Bannon? Like, were they brothers in arms for getting uh, I, uh, ostracized on set or anything like that? N- not quite like that, but all right, let's just, let's just get into it. So, you, you know, the fact that Goldsmith was so established by the time that this offer for aliens came. I feel like it kind of makes him a little bit of an anomaly on this production. Yeah. Just because it seems like a lot of people were at the beginnings of their career, like their careers were just kind of started getting going, but it's like Goldsmith is already a dude, like clearly. But I mean, why would you not want him? This guy's done. He did some Twilight Zone. He did. He's done a lot of sci-fi stuff. Planet of the Apes was a really like iconic score for him. It was very avant-garde at the time. And he also did, let's see, Capricorn 1, Logan's Run, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. So he's he's been in space a few times. Well, Capricorn 1. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> kind of in space. Kind of, kind of in space. Great score, great score. Well, I just watched it recently. Yeah, yeah he's done yeah, a lot of sci-fi absolutely. stuff. <laughs> and he also just, you know, he scored... Breakout, Breakheart Pass, and Cabo Blanco starring Charles Bronson. So there you go. Oh, the Bronson Connect. <laughs> There's a lot of Bronson Connects here, you guys. I'll just. Hey, we talked about Hard Times. Yeah, last Hard episode. Times, Walter right. Hill. Okay. So I'll just keep pointing them out. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so when Terry Rawling, who is the editor on this film, heard that they had nabbed Goldsmith, he used a lot of Goldsmith's previous work to create a temp score for the film. And Terry Rawling, interesting dude, because he was also a pretty prolific sound editor, sound designer. So he, he knows his way around some sound. And he included a lot of Goldsmith's work from that movie, Freud, that I mentioned earlier. So Goldsmith checks out an early cut of the film before he gets started, and this is what he had to say about that. He said, it really scared the shit out of me, to be honest. I was really terribly frightened, which is good. That helps when I have to sit down and write the music for it. For any film I'm doing, I like to see it first as the audience and react as the audience. I try to distance myself from eventually what I have to do. And then he got to work, and originally he made a main title that was quite beautiful and romantic, mm-hmm. <laughs> like more in line of Star Trek and, you know, kind of played up the romance of space, right? Which yeah. you can understand, especially if you're looking at this intro, like, without sound, right? And, you know, his thinking there was that he didn't want to give away 
what would later happen in the film. He wanted to kind of build up to that, and it wouldn't be until that landing scene where things start to get a little creepier. That was going to be his approach. Scott didn't like that. (laughs) He did not want to keep any secrets. He wanted the danger, the mystery, the fear to just be there right from the start. So, yeah, Goldsmith said it didn't go over too well. (laughs) Ridley and I had major disagreements over that. It is funny because I was struck by this rewatching it when you see the inside of the Nostromo for the first time and you see them waking up. You're like, oh, this should be serene. They're waking up. Yeah. It looks mm-hmm. pleasant. There's these little birds bobbing up and down. But you, the way they film it and the way the score syncs up with it, you do think something's going to pop out right away, yeah. even though they haven't even encountered the alien yet. It's, it's it, Yeah, it's very creepy, even though there's not anything inherently creepy going on just yet. Yeah, I kind of imagine the score that is the landing sequence score you mm-hmm. know that i attribute as like the main theme in a way i, I can see that almost being like well what if we just did this and you know because that is very like grandeur-esque and you know has that kind of romantic swell and feel to it and i love how it that eventually be kind of becomes the groundwork for like the some of the more intense pieces later but yeah that's interesting that they just didn't see eye to eye like immediately oh yeah and that was just the first thing that yeah, they did not yeah. see eye to eye on. So, you know, Goldsmith scrapped that theme, although, you know, like I said, it is used later in the film a little bit, and uh, it will return as well in Alien Covenant. Heads up, we'll get to that in six months. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came up with the main title theme we know now, which Goldsmith says he wrote in five minutes, but we'll see, I don't, you know, I don't know. I think he was just a little bitter. And so in this main main title thing that we get, there's a lot of extended techniques that he uses, just instruments played in non-traditional ways. There's a traditional conch shell instrument called a shanka that you kind of hear. That's run. He runs through an echoplex, which gives it that sort of low, drony, kind of just really sort of impressionistic noise that you hear in the background. It's very mysterious. And then he introduces two light motifs in this main title that is going to come back over and over again we get the alien motif which are like two slow progressions if you want to get real nerdy the notes are cb and then e and a those really slow changes and that's supposed to be the alien you hear it at the very beginning on the flute and it comes back a lot and then there's also a motif that he uses to kind of signal humans which is and also the passage of time which are two, an E-flat minor and B-flat minor chord pattern that you hear. It's a lot faster. You know, I've got my guitar right here. Let's let, no, I'm just Oh, is it you going to play it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah let's, rock let's out. roll yeah. through and see if this checks out. No. Yeah. This is all really cool. You also hear it in the Hypersleep track, which was another rescored track total. Goldsmith had to rescore seven different tracks in the film that Scott and Rawlings just weren't fans of, so... There was a lot of redos. Go back, try it again. Let's see this. And so, you know, that was, it was, yeah, a lot of headaches there. I think they just had very different ideas of what this film should sound like. And I think Scott wanted more a soundscape. And Goldsmith is like, I, I, that's not what I do. Actually, I have a quote on this. He says, working on Alien was one of the most miserable experiences I've ever had in this profession. <laughs> Ridley is a brilliant filmmaker, and I think that was just his second film, and he wasn't as articulate then about what the music should do. He wanted me to be visual with the music. That's not what I'm supposed to do. I think the biggest problem was just in communication. 
you know, Goldsmith, he's stubborn. He knows what he's doing. And I think that he just wasn't open to some of these other dudes telling him, like, what he should be doing. That's my take on it. Yeah. Did they work together again? Him and, him and Ridley Scott? No, right? <laughs> well, they did. Interestingly, they tried it again for Legend. <laughs> oh, classic. It, oh, duh. Yeah. But then uh, that which, also uh, got, that entire oh, score yeah. got scrapped for Tangerine yeah. which, which Dream. Which is a shame. It's yeah. a, shame a Tangerine too. Nightmare. Yeah. Uh, so I think that was it. I think they were done. Well, he dodged a bullet on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wonder at any moment, you know, Ridley's there, it's a second movie and he walks up and he's just like, Oh, I see you brought your little friend with you. And, uh, it's Jerry turns around and it's like, indeed I did bring him. Uh, his name is Oscar. And, uh, he basically <laughs> tells you that, uh, I know what I'm fucking doing, pal. And then like, you know, he's just like, carry on and just like walks away or something, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, just, just well, smug asshole mm-hmm. vibes all around. And I, I also heard there wasn't a lot of communication. I th- I can't even remember where I read it, but Goldsmith said something like he only heard from Scott like three or four times during this whole thing. So I think <laughs> Scott was like, oh, clearly Goldsmith knows what he's doing, which he does. Yeah, he's scared of him. <laughs> well, yeah. And like he knows what he's doing, but then he wasn't happy with what he was giving him. But, you know, so it was kind of like a weird push pull thing. I think that really checks out. Like, I don't think Ridley Scott's ever been a big music guy. Right. I mean, because if you look at his other films, like even like Blade Runner, like. I feel like you just kind of gave Evangelist like carte mm-hmm. blanche. Like that's such a wild soundtrack. Yeah. And so I can see him being like, well, this is my wheelhouse, but like, I'm going to be critical of it. I mean, he's really, you know, like no shit, no nonsense kind of guy. So I can see him being really critical of Goldsmith stuff and not necessarily in like a mean way, no. but just like, I'm going to tell you if I like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, yeah. Just. But, but it is kind of weird that. He wasn't really being constructed necessarily, you know, like, yeah. What's the other flip side to it, though? Because you look at like someone like Kubrick or Michael Mann and they'll like, commission these film scores and then just use like little bits and pieces and sometimes not at all, you know, and well, it's like, which one's better? <laughs> let's, yeah, yeah, let's get into that because, yeah, so ultimately this kind of weird tension resulted in a few pretty bold moves on Scott's part. So number one, they straight up bought the music from that film Freud so that they could use parts of it in the film. Because there were moments where they were like, you know what, I like this better, is that temp score love that a lot of composers talk about, that directors and editors, they fall in love with what they already have put in there. And so anything else is hard to wrap their heads around. And so they wanted to use that music from Freud, so they bought it, and they did. So the scene where Dallas is in the air duct, in the Mm. alien, when the acid... That's so good. The acid (laughs) goes through the floor... And when Ripley is looking for Jonesy, all of that is actually music that Goldsmith did for Freud. It's not original to this, this movie. It's funny too, because I feel like all those are the most conventionally action driven compared to the rest of the score in the movie, which is a little bit more almost ambient or avant-garde. Well, what's weird is that note that the, the music that plays when he's in the ducks, it sounds a lot like the music that's also later in the shining. Mm -hmm that Stanley Kubrick uses, which is kind of funny because then in Aliens, James Horner will use the music that's taken from 2001. So it's like this weird sort of like kind of, I don't know, echoes that happen in these two movies. Yeah, I was always interested why this didn't, you know, win best score or whatever. Well, it's because they're taking music from other movies and stuff. Yeah, it's complicated. And, and, you know, if you actually pay attention to it, those scenes, like the music doesn't actually connect to anything else in the film. Uh, like it sounds a little different it's got harpsichord like there's elements in it where it's like that 
it, you know, it works. It's keeping the beats and the emotion and the action of the, the, the moments, but it doesn't fit with the other stuff that's Goldsmith's doing, which makes sense because it's from a completely different film. <laughs> right. Okay, so that was one thing that they did. Two, they cut Goldsmith's original cues to pieces, kind of putting them wherever they wanted and needed, which, to be frank, like, that's kind of common. Not that it's great, but there's there's cues that he wrote for one scene that they would cut and put in a different one. And then the third thing, they scrapped Goldsmith's music for the end of the film and instead went with Howard Hansen's Symphony Number no. 2 from 1930. Goldsmith did write you know, a three and a half minute piece for the whole end scene, the end credits, and they only used approximately 20 seconds of it and then went into this Howard Hansen thing. Best part about all of this is they didn't tell Goldsmith any of this. So he found out at the first big screening of the film, sitting there being like, oh, really? Oh, Oh, really? So, yeah. (laughs) Was uh, really Scott smoking cigars by this point? (laughs) I'm just because every I, I just imagine walking around in this big fucking stogie the whole because he, he always has it now, but I don't yeah. know if he was doing that then. Yeah, yeah. that makes the smugness even funnier. Yeah, uh, Rachel, mm-hmm. the, the there's a score out there. Uh, I was listening to it on Apple Music, but it, and it has a ton of oh yeah, like extra stuff, unused stuff, and I've been I was listening to a lot of that while I was doing research and. Some of it is wild because you're like, I don't remember this in the movie at all. It's, it's because it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all of this was released on the soundtrack. You can get it. And like the the original score, you can listen to it on the Blu-ray, like the isolated original score. So this music is out there for you to listen to. And it's super interesting to kind of A and B them because I don't think either one is wrong. Like it's not like one's bad and it's just two different opinions. And it it, it is... Clearly Goldsmith knows what he's doing and I can it makes sense why he would score certain things that way. It's a, just a different kind of storytelling, I think. Yeah, and, and I want to say not to get ahead of ourselves because yeah. one day we will cover it. I feel the same way about the legend score. Yeah. I yeah. I, I do think I love that original Tangerine Dreams wild score. Mm-hmm. But I love the Goldsmith score too and I it it's it's totally different totally different movie, but like yeah, so it's it is interesting that this carried over into that production as well, and they just totally dropped <laughs> dropped yeah. the score. You know, like it's interesting. It's wild, but I, I understand, and I think that it makes sense for the film. I actually really like what Scott came up with, and if I had to pick one, I would probably go with that. It's, just, it's also an interesting time, and like you think about film scoring and what they're doing, and. It's just, I almost think that Scott was a little ahead of his time sound-wise with what he was thinking. Like, clearly now we get, especially in horror, right, we get so many scores that are sound design driven. And that seems like what more like what they were looking for. And I think it was just, I mean, it's 1978, right? Like, it's just a little early for that. And also Jerry Goldsmith is probably not the guy, as much as I love him and everything that he does, he's probably... Maybe he wasn't the best choice, but he was a big name. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts about like which one you would prefer or which way you would have gone, but that's my thought. Well, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I haven't, I don't think I've listened just strictly to the isolate. I would love to listen to the isolated music track and watch the movie with just that score. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that was out there. 
when you even when you go back and like like a lot of this was driven from Forbidden Planet, right? Mm-hmm. And that score we talked about in Big Trouble being uh, John Carpenter talked about that being like the granddaddy of sense scores, and that's just a soundscape. Yeah. So I can see you know Ridley Scott thinking where you know well, maybe this will just be a soundscape score driven by this, and you know why you don't tell Goldsmith that on day one is beyond me. But yeah, that's, that's interesting. I haven't listened to both. So I don't, I can't speak to that, but Mike, did you, uh, have you heard that? I I've heard a lot of it. I, I think the thing I love about the way that he's able to kind of scrap together a lot of these different sounds is that it does fit the aesthetic of this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about just even what we were talking about the sets and the production, like so much of it was ragtag in a way, you know, it's, it's a lot of, I mean, even down to the set design being a bunch of different jet <laughs> airliner parts and pieces and helicopter pieces to do that with the sound and the score, like it, it fits in that way tonally. And, and to be fair, Goldsmith's idea of basically lulling you in with the beauty and the majesty and kind of s- trapping you with the darkness, he still conveys that pretty well. I mean, yeah. even the opening has that sort of awe-inspiring notion of space before you're plunged into the the, the deep depths of it and you realize that, oh, this isn't going to be like 2001 where we're kind of looking at it with wide eyes. We're going to have to be kind of putting the, our hands over our eyes to cover uh, the, the monsters beneath. And I think that the score really speaks to that and whether or not it's not the original intention. I kind of side with the director. I mean, no, I do side with the director. I mean, it, it's his film. And I think that if he found the, the just the right tones that he needed for the different scenes, more often than not, that benefits the film. I mean, look at every one of Kubrick's movies does this mm-hmm. for the most part. And I, I don't think anyone would, I mean, most of his movies, you could pretty much, you know, what's that meme where you could like, oh, you can't hear a picture or whatever. Like you could pretty much hear every fucking picture in a Kubrick movie. And there's a reason why. Yeah. So. Well, and I, you know, both versions of the score are, are great. And, but I do think too, like perhaps the, like how it's not used, how the score is not used. Yeah. Ultimately has the biggest impact, at least for me on this film, because there's a lot of track. You, you talked about like some of these tracks that you heard and you're like, where is this? And that's because they were completely cut out. For no sound, like the scene where Ripley, the facehugger, falls on her shoulder and that moment, like that was all scored. There was a piece for that and Scott Mm. cut it out entirely. So just the use of of silence in this film, I think, is just, I mean, you know, silence is golden, right? (laughs) And just I think it's an undervalued tool a lot in the filmmaker's toolbox. And I think it was really bold of Rawlings and... Scott to really say like no we're going to do nothing and there's a lot of directors that could learn from this right because that contrast of having nothing happening like that just allows tension to build in our imagination to run wild with what is going to happen you don't know and you don't have the music kind of hinting at you letting you know like something's coming something's coming no there's just nothing that makes those scares work so well but that's what makes this such a modern movie too. I mean, the fact that so much, you know, so many of the best scares of this movie happen to be just diegetic noises mm-hmm. that are so original and so unique to this film. Like when I think of Alien, I never really think of the scores too much. I think of just the sound effects. Sound that design, they have. It's, yeah. It's, it's a lot like, well, 
I wouldn't say it's a lot like Ghostbusters because I love Elmer Bernstein's score. It's one of my, probably my favorite score of all time. But even with Ghostbusters, I and even Back to the Future, I think of like the sound effects that are tied to the equipment, that are tied to those worlds. And they are so uniquely tied to this movie. Like when I think of, the first thing I think of Alien is the, uh, the alarm. Mm-hmm. The alarm that plays at the end, Mother's Alarm. Like, and that is the score essentially for the, uh, the, you know, the final act of this movie when you think about it. Or even just like the little... <laughs> You know, I mean, I go back to and I opened up the, the whole episode with yeah. the essentially the the great movie ride intro, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's not the score that's played in that sequence in the great mm-hmm. movie ride. It is the alarm system going yeah, I mean, off. Even the, you know? the original, it's, it's kind of weird. Tr- the trailer for the movie, I mean, it had some <laughs> scoring in it, but it was mostly the alarm countdown yeah. the entire time and the cat meowing yeah. And, yeah. Or, or hissing, and you can even hear. I mean, you have to listen for it, but <laughs> during the chest pressure sequence, you can hear the alien growling underneath his stomach and bones crunching even before it comes through his chest. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So a lot. Okay. So I do want to talk about the sound design. Jim Shields was a sound editor. And like I mentioned, Terry Rawlings also had a rich history with being a sound editor. He also worked on the stone killer Chato's land and the mechanics starring Charles Bronson. Mm. (laughs) Reeves dominion. I know. (laughs) Ben Burt also worked on some of this, the sound design, very famous for his work on star Wars came up with R2D2's noises. And so he, I, from what I understand, kind of came up with sort of the low droning ship sounds, that like low hum that we get throughout the entire movie. Ben Burt helped create that. And, you know, the ship has a personality. We hear this heartbeat. Like if you think, if you hear it, if you listen carefully, you can hear this heartbeat of the film and it comes back along all the time. Like you talked about the alarm. And if you listen to it, it's like a heartbeat, like the pattern of it. And you feel like this ship is breathing and it's like just so incredible, I think. And it, it positions yeah. the audience as prey. Like we feel like, is that our, is that our heartbeat or is that the ship? It's like you, you it's like, you don't even, it's like almost a subconscious thing. Sometimes there's times where it's pretty obvious, but it's such an interesting way to engage you as an audience member and feel like, like you're a part of this. Like it could come out at any moment. Well, if you go to like sound machines now and stuff, they have like the binarial heartbeat, yeah. you know, to like put you at ease. So it's kind of really awesome that they did that because it's kind of lulling you into this sense of like comfort mm-hmm. while also this like underlying sense of dread. So it's and it's working against each other, but in a way that's like yeah. trying to disarm you the whole movie yeah. while also trying to scare the hell out of yeah. you. Yeah. And then like the, like the computer chatter and the clacking, like there's exactly. just such a tactileness to this film. Like it's palpable. Like you, yeah. I mean, the way it looks, like I feel it's very the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to me. Like I feel like I can feel this film, and mm-hmm. the sound design is such a big part of that because we're always just hyper aware in a very natural way of our environment. And it feels so grounded in reality because we have a frame of reference for how this feels. It's not super sci-fi thing where we, you know, we've got all these weird noises and screens and things that we don't necessarily have any frame of reference for. Like this feels like I I know this. I mean, you can buy keyboards even now that have like that my husband has has like the clicky <laughs> you know? i love the like, clicky. there's yeah. something very yeah. soothing about that and this yeah so the sound design i think in this is a crucial element into just everything this the the world the scares all of it is just incredible to me 
Well, these, you know, it's coming from an era where they would build these movies for the theater experience. Yeah. You know, so much of just talking about the release of this film, you know, we went into the sort of reactions that you know, folks that would get or fans that would get and just passerbys. And yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the enveloping of the audience was such a priority. And I guess it still is in some capacity, but not nearly as much to to this level. And I think you you hear the same things uh, when people talk about The Exorcist. Uh, you hear the, the same things when people talk about, I mean, even with Star Wars, I mean, you mentioned R2-D2, but like, yeah, I mean, like that movie doesn't work nearly as well because uh, as, as Scott talks about being influenced and even some of the, the, you know, the, the production designers talk about being influenced that movie is that, yeah, that tactile quality was so important to making it feel less like the science fiction movies of yesteryear and more like the, the movies that we saw in like 2000, like, you know, what 2001 established, you know, where you do get this sort of, it's maybe not so, it it makes it feel like it is real in the sense that this could happen. A viable future, right? Yes, exactly. And I think that's the most important part. And sound definitely does play a key element to it. I mean, even just coming up with the teaser for our season, this the the, the first thing I thought of was I have to use the computer sound effects because everyone knows that. Like, and in what, that's like what, three minutes that we have? We're just listening to sounds? Oh, yeah. Well, no, when, it's crazy. when Mike was over here, we were watching Alien. Well, Justin was here too, and sadly he couldn't be on this episode. He's frozen in space somewhere right now. <laughs> we were just kind of marveling at that opening and just the just the sounds you hear on the ship as it quietly moves through it. You could You could play that, clips from that opening, and I would know that it was Alien. You know what I mean? Like that's uh-huh. how... That's how tactile and that's how like much it's seeped into my body, you know, <laughs> like it's so cool. You know the ship for three minutes before you meet a single soul. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. Like what movies do that usually? I mean, I guess 2001 is one that comes to mind, but it's uh, it's very important. I think that's something that I the sequels I feel move away from more and more. I think they forget what how important that is. I think Cameron realizes that. I think Fincher to a degree – but this is really just, it, it signals a different type of movie, but also something that was brewing at the time. Yeah. That's what makes it work. It's also brilliant too, like that, just establishing the ship and, you know, that it does have this life to it, even if the crew is asleep and it goes from big to small, right? In the film, like mm-hmm. it starts out, you get this kind of this big feeling of the ship and then the landing and then things just get smaller and smaller and you get the air ducts and the pods and just it, just the, that approach to filmmaking to make it just feel more and more claustrophobic and those sounds just get more and more intense and claustrophobic as you do oh i just i don't know you guys this film's pretty good (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't know it's pretty all right it's all right it's all right that's all i kind of had on the sound but yeah awesome beautiful no great job just as complicated as every other aspect to this film (laughs) Yeah, and uh, I gotta say, at least for the first three films, I feel like the score is something to behold. Mm-hmm. So, thank you so much for all that glorious research. You know, I love Goldsmith, but uh, you know what? I also love Aliens, and I've got one right here. And I often say to it, "You are a beautiful, beautiful butterfly." You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? This is where we'll be talking about the progression of the design of the alien and its origins for each film. And 
you all thought we weren't going to talk Geiger, but well, you're wrong. We are going to talk about him at length. And the Nostromo has Parker and Brett, but we have Dan and Mike. And Danny, why don't you take it away uh, and kick it off with uh, what you've got for us? Uh, certainly. I'm also realizing, too, you're a beautiful, beautiful butterfly. That's from Brad Dourif, right? Yes. Uh, Halloween's Dominion. Using Chucky's uh, quotes and sound oh, bites again. We had to have Dourif in here, right? Yeah. Do you wish it was so, Chucky, though? Just, just the, the doctor <laughs> in that movie? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, H.R. Giger, uh, as we said, Swiss surrealist. Mike and I were talking about this earlier. It's very funny because he's obviously this very gothic looking kind of twisted guy, but his interviews, he sounds very wholesome in, mm-hmm. in a weird way. Even when he says messed up stuff, he's got kind of like a Werner Herzog thing going on a little bit. Yeah. So he grew up in the Swiss Alps, you know, almost like sound of music visuals, which is funny. Just to imagine him in his, uh, his little town. It was Chur, Switzerland, um, which he has gone on record as calling a dump <laughs> that he was never going to, <laughs> to make anything of himself. And, uh, his father was a pharmacist and was priming him to take over the family business. But according to Giger, he was not a very good student, especially in Latin. So that was never going to happen. There's no dancing around it. We've talked about it already. A lot of sexual inspiration, a lot of penises, a lot of vaginas, a lot of holes, a lot of big empty spaces, which he is accredited to. There, I guess the house he grew up in, there was a big shaft coming out of it, connecting to the building next door that he was obsessed with as a little kid and would have nightmares about. And as he went on life, he became an industrial designer. And if you look at the design, not just for Alien, but any of the images in Necronomicon, which we should say, too, that's that was a kind of compendium of the work he'd done up to that point. They had mm-hmm. this huge industrial bent to it. I can't remember what it's called, but one of my favorite images in Necronomicon, it's literally just like a drain, like a drain with a kind of vaginal rectangle in the middle of it. It's very simple, but it's so haunting. There's something about the way he just paints buildings and openings, uh, even without the explicit sexual imagery that just skews me out a bit. As Mac had mentioned, Dan O'Bannon knew him and had a copy of Necronomicon. He gave it to Ridley Scott at one of the first meetings they had. And the rest was uh, was history. I mean, before we go much into the actual design of the alien itself, Mike, anything you want to share as far as like his interviews go or quotes or just anything about him as a guy? No, not at the moment. I think a lot of it was just kind of what he had to do coming into it. I mean, as we've said, it, you know, a roller coaster for him too. You know, it wasn't yeah. like, which is, yeah. which is so weird to think about when you, because like now when you look at the franchise, all the iconography is so embedded in there. Like, I mean, you know, whenever you hear about a new movie that's coming out or, you know, a, if there's a, a product that they're going to release that's like, a, you know, a toy or even a comic book, the imagery that, that is, all goes back to Geiger comes right to your head. Mm-hmm. But yeah. at the time, it was like a battle for him to have to like, you know, figure things out. And, you know, some of the designs that actually come to fruition in this movie aren't actually some, aren't actually his, like they're, 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 yeah. they're building on his. It's almost like, you might say that him and O'Bannon probably had some good coffee talks together. It's like, he, <laughs> it's like, uh, well, they were buddies too, right? Yeah, so they, yeah I'm they sure. They're, like, misery. Oh, they're all yeah, fucking me over. <laughs> anyway, Roger Dickin before who is alive still, apparently I looked up, he's mm. like 84 and, you know, Coming I think he's us. credited as what cre- small creature effects designer. Once again, according to Geiger or Giger, sorry, I keep saying that interchangeably. Giger says he did ins- design these the face hugger and the chest burster, and that Dickon was going off of of that. According to Dickon, he designed it. And look, I, I recognize too that design does get complicated and intermingled at a certain point in the process. But 
as far as the roles technically broke down title wise, yeah, Dickon was in charge of Chestburster and Facehugger. Giger was in charge of Space Jockey, Alien, um, and the Planet. And yeah, they. I mean, and something that Giger did say that I think is very apparent in pretty much everything he designs is that because he comes from an industrial design background where everything has to have a function, he applies that to the biology of the creature. So, for instance, something he talks about is how the face hugger has like a spring loaded tail almost. So it's able to hop out of the egg and latch onto someone's face. Even if you look at the alien, which, you know, it's the, it comes from the Necronomicon, right? But the, the idea that uh, it looks like the machinery at the end of the ship, right? Like it kind of adapts to its, its environment. Yeah. I mean, let's just jump into it. I mean, we're the, the phases of design for this, everything had kind of the silhouette, the shape that we see of Necronomicon four. Cause once again, that, that is what it looks like in the book. Uh, but there were some various iterations of it. Uh, at one point there was a translucent costume. That's pretty cool, so cool. looking at all. Yeah. Have you guys seen the pictures of <laughs> no. that? Online? Yeah. It's cool. I mean, I don't think it would have worked for the movie. I feel like it probably would have been too light and had too much light showing through it for the alien to be able to disguise itself, but it's definitely cool to look at. There's actually a test, uh, you know, well, I don't want to talk too much about the uh, performer inside the alien Balahi Badejo yet, but there is a test of him just wearing this very basic xenomorph outfit that's pretty much just like almost like a black skin suit with the head just in silhouette that Giger designed. It's just meant to be a prototype of how the creature would move. But even that looks pretty scary. Creepy. Yeah, it's I watched, like, it, I like, watched it yesterday. It's yeah, I think it's, you find it on YouTube. It's creepy. <laughs> it's and it's it's just this clip of him kind of like walking through the corridor. But yeah, I mean, from the beginning, it it was pretty rad looking. That everything Giger came up with. This is pretty well known. But so the whole thing with Giger is that he combines biology and mechanical, so for biomechanics. So the original, even just miniature version of the Xenomorph had like snake vertebrae and then pieces of an old Rolls Royce in it. I mean, he's he's actually taking real bones and combining it with synthetic materials. Um, the, I think the most famous example of this, there's a an actual human skull in the front of the alien mm-hmm. head from a corpse in India. And there are conflicting accounts. So a lot of people think that, oh, they didn't think that that looks scary enough. And they thought having a more opaque head would be more effective and more unsettling, which I do agree with, but that wasn't what happened. The skull was always translucent. It's just the way that the light catches it. You can only really see the skull underneath in certain shots at the end where the aliens disguising itself and hiding in in the steam vent. And then I think maybe, I know people say you can see it when it attacks Dallas. I, I can't, but yeah, Mac, what are you going to say about that? Yeah, no, I read something that when they were doing that sheet, that scene on the narcissist at the end, when it's hiding in the wall, that they changed, that they did change the design of it to match the pipe more than rather be the oh, trans- interesting. but only, for, but only really for that scene. So I'm, it's interesting to see the moments where you kind of do maybe see that. And I, yeah, I, I always love that. I always love oh, that. It was same, kind yeah. of like, I, and there's so many versions of the alien. I love that. Like maybe you do get that earlier, but then it starts to meld more to the shit. Yeah. You know? I, like, no, I think that's what, I mean, even more so in this one than even aliens i really do feel like the alien changes with the environment in this like it almost blends into the shadows and uh, you know a lot of the replicas they still have of it or not replicas but actual props from it you it has that translucent carapace what is definitely decided was decided on was that it, it did have eyes in the skull originally mm. and someone said that like with the eyes and with them being that pronounced, it looked too much like a Hell's Angels biker and didn't look as scary. So, he, he, yeah, which is like funny because I'm like, that's Very still specific. pretty. Yeah, like it's still pretty scary sounding. So, yeah, he said he uh, he took them out there. But yeah, and then obviously too with the space jockey, he said, I, I don't know if you guys know which one it is. So, if you look at the ne- Necronomicon, 
he said that with the space jockey, he he actually just took from one of his images in that. I found one that has like a very small head that looks like the space jockey, but not sure exactly. But yeah, according to him, he he kind of I was almost like bragging, like, oh, like my designs were already there. They just had to bring them out and build upon them. But yeah, I mean, it it is funny how, and he comes he'll he'll come back later in the series obviously, but it is funny how much his just his visual work in this just puts its imprint among the entire series even though the alien design does change as uh, as the xenomorphs uh, go on. Yeah, cuz his order list is pretty extensive. You know, that he was supposed to do the translucent egg with movement inside. That was going to be for scene 71. He The alien bursting out of the egg from scene 71. He had various sizes of the alien for the face hugging. He was supposed to do the cane's chest and the alien to burst from the chest. He was supposed to design the small alien to run across the table and out the door away from the mess for scene 112. 112. Yeah, 100. Yeah, okay. And then the full-size alien able to perform the various uh, tasks as they indicate in the script. And I think the suit itself was the one I, that that really perplexed a lot of them because it became really hard to figure out how they could use the 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 head without hurting the stunt people the movability making sure it 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 looked good with like the ky jelly which also had a corrosive effect on it that they had to keep repainting over and over again Mm. nothing was easy like literally nothing came fucking easy for this movie i have something about the the ky jelly which is kind of funny but so i guess they ordered so much of it that they had to keep on, they had to like kind of ask a uh, medical place. Oh, so here's it. So the goo, the, it was, <laughs> this is from Rinsler's book and I love how they describe this. The goo was KY jelly, a water-based, water-soluble lubricant most often used to ease sexual intercourse. <laughs> so sexual just if, intercourse. in case you didn't know. So yeah, this is a quote from Johnson. Uh, we must have used gallons of that stuff because it drips off slowly and you're constantly replacing it. And they also used it to kind of camouflage the mechanical flaws of some of the alien suits and the the little miniatures. Yeah, you can see, you, and you, the, you know, the even the full length or the full body costume. It's essentially like a like I said, skin suit underneath, and then like this rib section you would put on like a sweater. So there are there are spots where you would be able to see the softness underneath, which yeah, I think the jelly helped mm. uh, obscure. Yeah, and you could tell mm. like yeah, I said Johnson, but it's Brian Johnson who was at the time. I think he was going about to do Empire Strikes Back, so I'm sure he was really happy. Basically. <laughs> figuring out how to get this to the finish line with fucking bottles of KY jelly like surrounding him everywhere. Yeah. So with uh, HR Giger, as we said, it became apparent that it was going to be too much work for one person to take on, which is why they got Robert Diggin. Um, we talked about Cobb before with the ship. For the actual close-ups of the head, for to be able to you know, have the pharyngeal... How do you say that word? Pharyngeal jaws? I never know how to pronounce it. I think that's the, pretty good. Pharyngeal? I mean, I think pharyngeal jaws, the double jaws uh, <laughs> that come out, They that wasn't quite Giger's expertise, right? Even though he... I mean, he knows about industry, but they needed someone who had like a lot of experience with that. So they turned to Carlo Rimbaldi, who at the time was most known for building the big animatronic in the King Kong remake, which I think oh, looks cool. pretty cool. I know a lot of people I do too. Yeah. rag on it, but he uh, did, and it. It, along with Rick Baker too. And uh, yeah. hey, we could do a whole podcast on that, but he designed, so anytime you see the, the alien's jaws come out close up or you see it snarl, that's all essentially a big mechanical head that he built that is larger in proportion than the one they, they used for uh, the suit. And, you know, Mike had mentioned KY Jelly. They actually used uh, condoms for the the stretching of the jaw and the mechanics of it. So it is funny that you have this big phallically designed creature that has a bunch of shit that you would put on a penis. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> for a sex act. Yeah, so Rimbaldi built built that and used pistons, and, and I think the teeth were actually metal. Like that's why they look so you know sharp and and disgusting and everything. And yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting because I've purposely not researched the other films as we've gone on. But I'm like, oh, did they have that many people? collaborating for the future aliens or was it like, Oh no, they knew how to do it by that point. So we just have one designer. I mean, I mean, once again, this is, this is kind of a rare thing for a genre film at this point to add this many designers all, all putting their hands on it. But yeah, let's go, let's go into the actual performer himself. Blahi Badejo passed away at a very young age due to sickle cell disease. Um, he was a Nigerian kid. He was only 26, really, of Yoruban descent from Lagos originally, but was in London studying graphic design. And they knew they needed someone very tall and very slender to fit inside the suit and make it imposing. They had stunt people at this point. And honestly, a lot of what you see in the film is the stunt person, like when it you know comes down from the ceiling and when it's fighting and all that stuff. There's actually very little raw footage of Bilahi in there, but... Honestly, most of the iconic stuff is him. So him in the pipes where he goes after Ripley at the end, that's all him. Yeah, the, yeah, the kind of uh, the jazz hands, the the way he just moves gracefully, like with his hand before he's kill, he kills uh, Lambert and Parker, that's all him. He moves in this very otherworldly fashion. He took mime classes God. to learn how to do this. Anyway, the casting director saw him in a bar and pretty much talked to him. They set up a meeting, and that was that. So the... A kind of common story about him is always oh, very reserved on set. He didn't like attention, but he was very proud of his work. I did find an interview with him. So this was called, I think, I believe this is from Starlog. Um, it's on the site called Scraps from the Law, where they you know find articles from old magazines. And he actually speaks like pretty enthusiastically about everything. He he talks about like knowing it, 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 it it's this iconic thing and he, he he says here he goes it says Balahi regrets that no one can recognize him as the alien in the film but thinking back on Boris Karloff Christopher Lee or other successful actors who began their careers by playing grotesque monsters he adds the fact that I played the part of the alien for me that's good enough legally I'll be given the opportunity of doing a follow-up if there is one he unfortunately did not Although he is training for a career in graphic design and commercial art, he exclaims, not a, fil- a film comes along, which kind of goes against everything I had read about him before that. I'd always heard about, like, oh, he didn't talk about it much. He was really quiet, but he sounded pretty excited about it. But yeah, he he did get offered to come back uh, to do Aliens. He did not. He moved back to Africa, focused on his graphic design work, had kids, and yeah, he he died very young, unfortunately. So I think he was 39. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, yeah. yeah, very sad. But uh, yeah, what are your guys' thoughts on just, I mean, the alien in this does move and act kind of differently than any of the other ones, even in Aliens, which are much more acrobatic and doing these stunts. Here, it's almost like slow moving and ethereal. I mean, do you, do you prefer that or, or think it's effective? No, I, I love it. I mean, uh, some, yeah, of the, some of the stuff that really informs me, though, is a lot of the cut stuff, like the crab walk. You know, mm-hmm. towards Lambert and stuff like that, but um, that's the that's the creepiest. Yeah, thing. it's so yeah. it's so. I get why weird. they cut it. Like it's so off putting. Yeah, and yeah, it does look. I see it, and I can see people laughing at it or feeling it's silly. But like, I love the idea. It doesn't really know what to do with its body. Yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, I love that it kind of just comes upon her in this innocent way, and then yeah, I I, I had a couple things about Balahi like. Apparently, and I was telling Mike this the other night when when they were like, "Oh, we're gonna we're actually gonna hide like in the narcissist ship," 
And uh, let's get him in here to see if that would work, you know, essentially. And then apparently he was already in there and scared the hell out of them. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> and they were like, oh, crap, this is going to, this will yeah. work. Uh, and, and and I think that, it, I think it was super hot and, you know, I, yeah, I think they can only do so many takes. But at one point, they, yeah. uh, according to, you know, what I was reading in Starlog, they'd wanted to pour live maggots inside the carapace of the head to oh, like God. make movement. And yeah, I, 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 I think that was a little bit too far. And they're like, no, let's maybe not do that yeah. to this guy. Yeah. To Dan's point, he, he said that, uh, and I had a quote here from this CNN article I read, he said, the idea was that the creature was supposed to be graceful as well as vicious, requiring slow, deliberate movements. He said, after I fling Yafakoto back with my tail, I turned to go after Lambert. There's blood in my mouth, and she was incredible. It wasn't acting. She was scared. Veronica yeah. was really terrified. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's largely because I think the reason why it works so well is Ridley did not let the actors mm-hmm. see the alien in pre-production or any of that stuff at all until they had to work with it. So they were genuinely like put off by it, you know? It was kind of funny talking about the duelist before, because according to the, you know, as we said, I mean, if you watch all this alien attacks, it's more about what you don't see similar to the shark attacks and jaws, but apparently he did film like full on kind of fight scenes that were more like duels. Ridley Scott talked about, Oh, I wanted to be like, they were going to battle with swords. I, you know, I like that we don't see that. You know, you can see like yeah. the delete scenes of the crab walk and all that stuff. Yeah, Mike, can say <laughs> it, it would have been really cool if they could have just preempted Return of the Jedi and like Ripley's hiding, and then you just have the alien talking to her the whole time, he'll stalking her like a uh, you know Vader, just been like, <laughs> yeah. you know, where are you? you know, uh, or not, Vader, or not Vader, well, but Vemper. <laughs> it's it's funny that you bring up Return of the Jedi because they actually considered Peter Mayhew to play the alien before they landed on on uh, Balahi Bay, and I don't know, I I couldn't find how far they got with that. I don't know huh. if they did like a costume test or something, but yeah, he was oh, I in got, consideration. Yeah. I actually have a piece of trivia from that. It's a quote oh, yeah, from a- George Lucas and he says, uh, fuck off. You've stolen enough. You've stolen enough from my movie. Yeah. Your thoughts, but be- your thoughts betray you. Ripley. Your thoughts- <laughs> Especially for Jonesy. You can't be a xenomorph and a, and a Wookiee. It doesn't work like that. Oh, and we should say real quick, cause I know people, little side note when we talked before about like being intimidated to go into the series part of the reason is because the fans are very passionate about this Mm -hmm. and not only that i think because it's in the science fiction realm they're not that horror fans can't be smart but they they really think about the science of this and the etymology of words i mean if you go and read it they're just they don't sound like kooky fan theories they sound like people very arguing very passionately about the science Mm. of this film and others that's part of why i'm like oh i'm hoping not pissing them off but you you see people talk about they say xenomorph in the second film, mm-hmm. but that's more of like kind of a catch-all term for uh, it's like a Latin word for like mysterious creature or something. Well, so like it's they never say any of these words, whether. right? Like they never say face hugger in the movie. They I don't never think say so. like yeah, it's I just think it's, funny. That I think it's it, it all came out. I don't know where it came from. Like after like, interviews, I think yeah, face. I don't know what. Yeah, that's a good question. I remember hearing that when I got the aliens action figures yeah. from Kenner. They were yeah. calling it chestburster and face hugger, but I don't know if it was used. Before then or not, that's well, sure on the alien or something. Like, I don't know. There's yeah. a curious irony here in that Ash says zombie, which in the most of the Romero movies yeah. they never oh, say right. zombie in it too. So that's kind oh, of that you is know. Fun. yeah, it's funny because he says like, like, oh, it's I can yeah. assure you, it's not a zombie. When we were watching it last night, I watched the director's cut. So I've seen this movie uh, twice in the last 20, 24 hours. What can I say? It's a new favorite. During when we were watching it, Sammy, who had only just, I think she's seen it only a couple times. She was like, you know, I I would love to get more of the mythology. And I was saying, I was trying to argue, I was like, well, you know, growing up, that was 
the most exciting element. And I think this connects to what you're saying with the sci-fi fans, Dan, in that you did fill in all the blanks. Like the sandbox was up to you. Like, and you'd only have bits and pieces of it. So it wasn't until really like the late, I guess like maybe 2000s, early 2000s, especially when Alien versus Predator came out, that, you know, you were starting to debate about, oh, well, wait a second, the deleted scene with a cocoon, that doesn't make sense with what happens in two and all that. Like, it was just kind of like up for grabs and that was fun. It was, it, it kind of reminds me of what Star Wars was like when you just had three movies and you right. can just well, kind of fill in the blanks a little bit. Like, I miss those it's, days. It's really, I'm sure we'll talk about this as we go on with the other movies because that deleted scene, which, yeah, I'm sure you've all seen this, listeners, but essentially Ripley stumbles across Dallas during the, the third act and he's still alive and he's being cocooned and they call it ovomorphing. It's the ability of if there's not a presence of an alien queen, they can use human material and DNA to turn it into an egg to reproduce. And then she also sees the corpse of Brett, who it's the same thing's happening. He's a lot further along. Now, here's the reason why it's debate like, oh, is that canon or not? Because on one hand, yeah, in the 70s, it's like, oh, well, no, that's not something that was used. We see the queen in the in the next movie. However, James Cameron did watch that and did use that as inspiration about like, oh, like how would these reproduce? And then if you read the comics later on and you read some of the novels, they do pull from this ovomorphing theory. And even if you look at way later on with Prometheus and Covenant and the engineers well, and all that, a lot of those ideas were planted in stuff that didn't make it here, like Max said with the pyramid. And then in the comics later on with like religious fanaticism. So even it's weird because yeah, like with Star Wars, even though it's up for debate what's canon, what's not, everything was kind of pulling from everything, and that starts right away with this movie because of that deleted scene. Although it's technically not something we see again in the movies, we definitely turn back to those ideas that were planted here, and it just it there's mythology from the get go, and the fact that Ridley Scott, in a very minimalist fashion, doesn't explain the space jockey, doesn't explain exactly how the alien reproduces it feels so restrained in a way that just lets all of our imaginations run wild. And, and obviously that starts with the design, what we're talking about now. Was it on a Friday when I said like, what if that was it? Like yeah. that, that was it. Yeah. I, I couldn't I remember it was, was last it. night. Yeah. Like I do kind of wish because I think the, the mist, well, no, I don't because I love this fucking franchise, but <laughs> there is this sort of mystery that is inherent in this film that you're just, that you're talking about Caffrey that I, I, I just really do miss. And I don't know if we could ever go back to it. Because it's it's like mm-hmm. the Michael Myers thing. It's fitting that you know we've covered Halloween on here because it's you've see, we've seen so much of the Boogeyman now, you know, and like largely he was in the shadows in that first movie, and it's the same thing with this with the alien here. And now it's like you know we've played side-scrolling games where you see like thirty fucking alien xenomorphs like <laughs> and, and like coming at you. Like yeah. the effect does wear off, and I, I don't know if they can get the lightning back in the bottle there. I, I because even watching the first one now, I'm like. It's, it's still scary, but I'm like, can you replicate that again? Or I don't know. I guess that's what I'm most curious about with this new Fetty film is that can he go back to when these things were just nightmares? Because now they just, they, they kind of, I mean, they have like plush dolls of Xenomorphs now for kids. I think that what this has and none of the others will or ever will is, is that that fear of the unknown. That's mm-hmm. like what works so well about this film and the story and like literally everything about this film is just you don't know. And it's that same thing in slashers, too. It's just, yes, you're searching the shadows. You don't know. And I think that's partially why it's like that deleted scene. Like, I get why they cut it out and I kind of like it because then, yeah, you're, oh, I know something about this creature now. And I know, I like, 
and just by cutting it out everything's just more mysterious which makes it so scary like the, to, this is to me the scariest of all the alien films uh, easily yeah, totally yeah so it, and it's it's funny too because they cut that scene just for pacing reasons right. it wasn't like they were like oh we don't it was like okay you know we just it, it it's gonna sap the tension out of this final act when she's running to the narcissist but then you're like, oh, no, like, thank God you did cut it. But then I, I do like that it exists later because the director's cut includes that. It yeah. includes the hanging. Yeah. There was a scene originally that explicitly hinted at a romantic relationship between Dallas and Ripley. They took it out or I think I think they shot that. I don't even know if they put that in the they director's cut. It came very close. It was one of the last scenes that they cut was that romance sequence on the pleasure yeah. chair. <laughs> A pleasure chair. Would have been a totally I, but, different movie. But I love it, too, because there's still remnants of it. You're like, there's tension. And we'll talk more about that in characters. As Mike said, it, it especially in these early movies, it's great graphics and, and this alien category we have. They're just going to intersect. And we'll still have some, obviously, plenty more to talk about when we get to great graphics. And the listeners are pulling their hair out like, no, guys, stop talking about all the special effects and stuff. It's like, we know no, what we're no, doing. No, no, no. There's yeah. plenty to yeah. go around in all these movies. Yeah. Yeah, but but to Mike's point about this, maybe, what if this was the last one? They did posit it being the end, Ripley getting killed at the end. But it was kind know, of wild ideas. Such a wild yeah. idea, like rip her head off and <laughs> pile it back to Earth. <laughs> Didn't yeah. it rip her head off and then eat it and use her voice like it could talk like <laughs> no, that? Yeah, I, I always read that it, it bit her head off and then that's, talked that's in her voice. It's very close. What was yeah. it? Mac, you got it. Well, there were there were like multiple versions, but one was like it 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 like knocks her head off and then sits down and types and whatever on the thing, and then it like <laughs> click, click, click. and then it uses Dallas's voice because he's been like kind of assuming it is I don't know through the egg process and stuff. I don't, it's very oh, very like okay. I don't I don't think it really works at the end of the day. That ending would exist before Star Wars was made because that's yeah. the type of ending you yeah. get. From the sci-fi of the early '70s, where you are getting the downer ending. I mean, just you bleak, were last time we nihilistic. Had, oh, right? just totally fucking bleak. Like Mac, you were like telling me all the endings for the Planet of the Apes movies that we that, like a few weeks ago, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, they're fucking de- just depressing. Love them. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah. There, the, even Escape from the Planet of the Apes, which is has a lot of lightheartedness in it. The ending is so the ending is brutal. Sad. The last twenty minutes Awful. of the movie is brutal. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let me let me just throw this out there because it, we're talking about this. Maybe this. What if this was the last one? Scott said in the Rinsler book. He said he. It said that Scott may have told the artist that he theorized that the creature was crawling into the machinery at the end and the narcissist to be warm because it was dying. He said, "I try to put that across in the end sequence." He said, mm-hmm. "I want I want to show that the alien has a limited life cycle, like a butterfly." which is perfect for the name of our category. He said, within that period of time, it has to reproduce and spread as fast as possible, maybe in a cycle of only days. And so you see slime emanating from the big alien's body because we're trying to convey that maybe he's sealing himself in again like a cocoon. Also, by this point, he has to be provoked to attack because he has to get on with his life cycle. And what I think is interesting the most about that idea is that if only they had like shacked up and waited it out, mm-hmm. <laughs> they yeah. might have survived. But I think the alien would have gotten more aggressive because if he was doing the the idea of you know turning the human bodies into eggs because it's got to reproduce before it dies, I think it would have gotten more aggressive and would have attacked more and would have come out more 
and if they weren't so freely <laughs> trying to look for yeah. it, you know, so it's it's kind of that's an interesting mm-hmm. idea. And I like but... that theory because the, the movie, hearing that, it's the first time I'd heard that, and even hearing that now, there's nothing in the movie that goes against that. Like it doesn't confirm it, but you're like, oh yeah, that could be why because it only attacks Ripley at the end because she's near it, right? It's like you're like, oh, would it have just stayed in the Narcissus? It's funny because there's a series of alien novels later on, the Cold Forge, I think, is one of them. There's a really good alien podcast called A Perfect Organism. They are interviewing the writer, and he said he wanted to make it as sciencey as possible. So mm-hmm. he he asked like all these scientists, "Oh yeah, how like how would this egg, this ovomorphing thing work? How how do the aliens grow so fast? Because I always forget that like this movie's over the course of what a day or something like that. Very it's yeah. very swift, right? Like when I was a kid, I thought it was over like weeks, and that's how the alien was growing. But like, oh, it goes from chestburster to to big chap, as they call like, it yeah. in hours. And so he was saying that the scientists he talked to, I'm not going to get the material right, but they're like, oh, well, there are certain like single cell organisms or microscopic organisms that can like absorb, I think, silicone or something. Like they, they can keep absorbing and keep accruing matter. Well, I mean, Ash I talks don't know about that. Something... That's what he says. Yeah. 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 Like, it... wait, quick question for you guys. Cause I was, when Ripley interrupts him when he's staring at the thing on the screen, is that like, we had the same question. Uh, I had the same question. version of the chestburster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I couldn't find anything confirming that, but like it is a face he's looking at, right? You And I know as human beings, we always try to just like, the first thing we look for is a face and an image, right? And I think that's kind of what's going on. But I do think because he turns the screens off, mm-hmm. I think that yeah. he does see that there's something there and we see it too, right? But before Ripley's able to really give it a good look... He turns the screens off. I do think that there, you can see like an eye or almost like a little yeah. beakish mouth. Yeah, or beak something. Yeah. when you see him and you, at the dinner scene, you see him kind of waiting, like you know what's going to happen. But I, I was wondering that, and also if the alien design did have eyes, even though we can't see them for most of me, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, lots of lots of coolness there. I feel like uh, the alien is a lot like the killer whale. Like I mean, because I'm an idiot as a kid, I used to think the white circles in a killer whale were somehow the eyes because oh, they're, yeah. they're the thing. And then, and yeah. then I, you know, I, I, I got a book and I realized that <laughs> it makes no fucking sense. You saw Free Willy? <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, so the eyes are somewhere else. But I do wonder if like, it's kind of the same thing where it's, it does kind of have that. Well, that's if you're looking at like, I keep thinking of the toy where you can see the actual skull within it. Yeah, the Kenner one, yeah. I, I did want to ask though, because, you know, we're covering all of it including the director's cut, what do you make of the cocoons scenario? And like, cause for me, I always took it as the humans are taken in, in this, in this part. Cause this doesn't, I don't think this is this. I don't think this is canon now at this point, but the idea that the humans are, the, are being involved. So when you see Brett, Brett is becoming like the embryo for the, I'm just trying to figure out what the yeah, fuck the it's cocoon a, is It's essentially be. using, other cells and just matter to convert it into an egg. But, okay. it, it, but once again, it's like, Oh wait, so is that how eggs are always created? So were all the eggs on the space jockey derelict shipped. Yeah. What uh, happened to the rest of the crew? Cause was the, yeah. was the face hugger supposed to instill a queen to be able to create the eggs? Yeah, I think, I think, but from what I've read mm. that if the alien has to resort to the ovomorphing, which is creating, using dead bodies to create eggs, it's going to be a queen face hugger, so it doesn't have to do that later on. Okay, yeah. I mean, I guess if you want to tie that back to what they were saying before about the alien dying, maybe maybe it has, it maybe it takes a lot of work to do that. But then once again, you're like, wait, so is that how all those eggs on the derelict were made, or was there a queen? And you know, obviously, it's okay that we don't have the answers to that. But I, th- I think that's the idea that they're just using human or 
matter to begin with. And Brett's dead, so I don't think it has to be live human cells either. So no, no. Uh, right. Cells to, to create an egg, which will then hmm. birth a face hugger that will create a queen, I think. Is that, that makes sense because if there are no survivors, like, we, you know, when you go to, I mean, uh, jumping ahead to aliens, you see the colonists that are in the same situation, except there yeah. are chest bursters within them at that point. Yeah. So yeah. I do wonder if when you look at the space jockey and they go and, and Kane goes underneath and sees you know, all these eggs, if those were the, you know, not to jump ahead to Prometheus, but those, yeah. you know, the, you know, those colonists that were actually well, part of that now. Yeah. And obviously as we get to Prometheus and Covenant, the biology of everything and how Just aliens goes, are created, uh, it gets, it, it gets a little like, um, shoots off into space. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, I'm like, Oh, this, they, so this black goose shit can do anything. I mean, all right, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. We'll yeah, get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, Hey, sounds and looks like a scary monster. Thanks so much for tuning in for this episode. Stick around because the next one, we're going to be covering the cast, the kills, and the creations. Until then, this is your commanding officer, Wolfman Mac of the commercial starship Halloweenies, signing off. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.